thank you very, very much again. And um, I think we should start at the beginning, really, and where you were born and when, if you're prepared to own that. <laughs> Too long ago, um, 1955 in London. Okay. And you, you're not an only child, are you? No, I have uh, two brothers, uh, two younger brothers. Okay. Um, so you were the eldest. Yes. That means you were the trailblazer, does it? Um, no, I was the least wise, actually, I think, oh, probably. You? Um, so you got in more trouble than the others? Uh, I think I probably did, yeah. Although we, all of us had our fair share. I, mean, okay. I don't think we were any of us model, model school pupils. Okay, okay. And where did you grow up? Tony? I grew up, uh, well, in the early days, I, we moved to the countryside, to Sussex, mainly because I was very bronchial as a child. So the fact that I started smoking when I was 12, uh, my mother actually, I don't think, ever forgave me, having dragged herself away from her beloved London to, right. to just outside Haywards Heath, where she was completely lonely because my father was commuting into town. Um, I then started smoking. Anyway, um, and then we moved back into Croydon. So I would say I grew up in Croydon. I mean, somebody has to. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, right. Well, there you go. One from not. Not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I say Croydon, I mean, that was actually Sanderstead, which was a uh, yeah, posh bit. Oh, well, even posher. Um, uh, and uh, and I'm, then I got lucky, I think, really. I went to a good, good primary school. Same school as um, Kate, uh, Kate, what's her name, the model? model. Kate Moss. Kate Moss, yeah. yeah. Okay. Bit, she was a bit younger than me. All um, right. And then I got lucky. I got into Trinity School of John Whitgift in Shirley Park, and it was the year that Trinity, the, the Whitgift Foundation, which was Whitgift School in those days, Whitgift School and Trinity School is now Whitgift Trinity and two girls' schools, Old Palace and Croydon, Cromhurst. They were a very powerful foundation, and after selling 26 acres of prime real estate to what became the Whitgift Centre back in 19... 65 or so, they became the second richest foundation in the country after Christ Hospital. Um, and we had the benefit of it because we moved into, I moved into a brand new school open the year I went. I went in the junior form. I went when I was 10. And in those days, it was um, a direct grant school. Okay. Does anybody remember direct yes. grant schools? Definitely do, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, one we might get onto politics later, perhaps, I don't know. Um, certainly one of the more asinine acts of any politician was Harold Wilson, who was not a fool, who decided that the uh, shrine of comprehensive education must be worshipped at, uh, at all costs and decided to get rid of the direct grant schools, which, for those of you who don't know about them, were 50% fee-paying or bursaries and 50% below-class scholarships. I grew up with a complete cross-section of boys, all boys' school, yeah, it isn't now, but a complete cross-section of people from the Addington estate, New Addington estate, which was pretty rough, to posh boys, to, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and the other thing is that Trinity had the benefit of a guy called David Squibb as head of music, who created the Trinity Boys Choir, which I was found a member of, and which is now, I suppose, the most, probably the most famous boys choir in the world. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I got lucky. Right. Okay, can I just stop you and ask if people at the back can hear okay? Can you hear? That's okay. Right, okay. So, so 
Yeah, that's lucky. Uh, just back to Haywards Heath. Is the year particularly special in Haywards Heath? Is that um, why you were? Oh there? well, it was a place called Horsted Canes, actually, which is just outside Haywards Heath. Well, yeah, in those days, I mean, anywhere in, with, out of town was was clean air. I okay. mean, we lived in North North London, you know, right. which was shit, you know, because it was there were there was people burnt coal. Yes, I yeah. mean, I'm that old. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it was it was lovely. I had a great time. Okay, um, but. Uh, uh, I don't think my mum did because she, there was a real, because it was all those years ago, there was a real class thing going on. She was somewhere like Holster Cage now, and I go there from time to time. I've got a friend there. And it's now a lot of people who work from home or commute. Yeah. In those days, my dad was one of the very few who commuted into the city. Right. Uh, and the place was, so it was either farm labourers and, you know, people worked on the land, or um, the posh lot, and right. the posh lot were all um, connected with Birch Grove, which was a mile down the road, which is where Harold Macmillan lived, and the Faber family, branch of the Faber family lived there, and actually they were quite nice, but there was some, I think my mother was just frozen out, she was a very bright woman, but she didn't fit in, I don't think that would apply now there, okay. I think it's much more kind of... So your, your mum was a housewife, your dad went into town each day, what did he do? He, were, he worked in chemicals all his life, okay. buying and selling and creating. Yeah. Um, and she, my mum had trained as a nurse, um, and was a, uh, and then a midwife, and then a health visitor, and she stopped in to order to us. bring you all up. Yeah, because okay. that's what you did in those days. And happily, do you think? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah I think she was... She was a marvellous woman. I was very close to mum. She died very young. She died at the age of 60. Right. And uh, uh, I was particularly close to her. And, and uh, I... Uh, she came from a very interesting, very, very poor working-class background. Her mother was the first Labour councillor in South London. Um, wow. She lived... You know, my, my uncles were in the front line at, at Cable Street. You know, they, it was that... Quite politically orientated, uh, working class uh, uh, Anglo-Irish family, and she did. She became a nurse, and then she retrained. She got a degree in sociology. Um, yeah, I think she. Um, but I think she enjoyed having us. Right. I, I, you know, I think I never detected a feeling that she'd wasted time. I think she was just pleased to get back to work when my youngest brother, who is much younger than me, who also now lives up here, uh, when he was old enough to go to school, she thought, right, that's it now. Back. And she went back into health visiting and it was very successful. Right. Did you enjoy your childhood? Did you enjoy growing up? Was it an experience you looked back from fondly or you were glad to move on quite quickly? Uh, no, I loved it. I loved growing up. I had a really wonderful childhood, actually, when I think about it. I still have... I still have a strange nightmare, um, not nightmare, but strange dream, once in a while, where I'm at school and I can't remember my locker number, <laughs> Mrs. Trinity, to get my books out, and I can't, and, and inside of our lockers, we normally used to put our schedule for, you know, what classes to go to, and uh, I have this recurring nightmare that I, can, that I don't know where I'm going.
Okay. Which I think it wouldn't take a massively Freudian analyst to suggest that that was because most of the time at school I didn't know where I was going. Um, uh, I really only wanted to do uh, music and drama and stuff like that. So I must have been bright because it was fiercely competitive to get in there, as it still is. But, I mean, I managed to fail maths and French consistently over, over and over again at O-level. And you weren't supposed to go into the sixth form unless you have maths and French, yeah. but they kind of waved me through. I then managed to... Um, I failed music A-level. All right. Um, now, I, you know, I don't know whether people know, but I, I have had really quite a successful career in the music business. Um, uh, a very successful career. Um, so, yeah, that's quite an odd one. And I got E grade for English. And I got O, par o level. I think I got O level pass for the A level music and art, because I did theatrical design for art. Yeah. So I was real. Uh, I was the worst pupil in, in the history of the school, probably, but uh, I now get sort of asked back to go and give speeches, um, which is, I think is hysterical. But I think often uh, people who've gone through the arts did fail that system, and actually art colleges were only too pleased, and maybe music colleges, to get people who, who hadn't, hadn't been, had the A-level drilled into them and therefore had a, uh, sort of something of a closed mind about how to move forward. So you probably had a very open mind. I think receptive. I did. Um, I think I, I, there was a certain regret <coughs> that um, my, but David Squibb, my music teacher, admitted long afterwards that he'd spiked my application, my UCCA, as it was then, application, by giving me such lousy references he knew I wouldn't get in anywhere. I didn't even get into Goldsmiths for me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but he had decided I should go to the Royal College of Music and do singing and piano, and that's what I, indeed I did. But uh, nowadays, of course, uh, I mean, he was right, because I was a practical... Yeah. I mean, now, interestingly, I do much more research than I do performing, but in those days, I, was, I wanted to do it. And he was very aware that most universities, with the possible exception of places like York, were so uh, academically based that I probably would have... They'd have killed you off. Killed me off, yeah. yeah. Uh, what I wanted, and I still, this still, whenever I go, I've filmed quite a lot in Cambridge, particularly for various projects, and whenever... I go to Cambridge, I go, ah, my plan, my, my English teacher's plan had that I, that I would do each study English at Cambridge and do a choral scholarship and then go and do postgraduate at the Royal yeah. College. Yes. And there are moments when I think, gosh, wouldn't it be, but I know what I would have been like. I would have done no work at all. I didn't do much work at RCM, but I would have done, I would have done a lot of punting and all things associated, so yeah. it's probably just as well. You, you had to grow into it, probably, by, by the practical side yeah. and then getting interested yeah, in yeah. the theoretical side. Yeah. So was this guy at, at the school, was he an inspiration in some way? Well, or he, was there somebody else who was? Well, there were two, really. My, my head of English was a chap called Peter Smith, who then went on to be... He was very political. He went on to be General Secretary of the, what was then the Assistant Master's Union, mm -hmm. which I believe is now the Lecturers and Teachers. Yeah, I think it's been absorbed yeah. into a bigger... Um, and, he, and he directed um, lots of the operas I was in, because I was a boy soprano, and I was quite good. And I had a kind of love-hate relationship with him, and I remember him giving me, a, on my school report when I was 
probably about 15, he gave me like a C. And I was really good at it. I mean, you know, I, I am, you know, I, I, I'm good at it. I read every bloody classic at the time I was 16, but I was lazy. And he wasn't having it. And I remember him describing me as facile. And when he said facile, he did not mean in, um, you know, an approving manner. You know, as in, just gets away with it. Lazy little sod could do much better. Um, and I did like him very much. I was scared of him. And I liked David Squibb, my, my music master. Um, we fought a lot, actually. Well, now I think of it. And I don't quite know. Well, I think we fought because he could see somebody who had some talent, who was in great danger of squandering it. Yeah. Uh, but then he did wonderful things. He was, the, he was the local, the music reporter. I doubt they have a music section now in the Troy Advertiser, but in those days, it was a good newspaper. And he was David Squibb at Fairfield, at Fairfield Hall. And at Fairfield, every week, on a Saturday night, one of the orchestras or solo concerts would play, and then they would do Sunday afternoon at the Festival Hall. So you would get the same programme on the Saturday night. And we were blessed. And, I, and he used to, he always had a spare ticket, and he used to take me. So most Saturdays, certainly throughout my early teens, I grew up going, expecting to go to, you know, to, to a concert. And I saw, I saw, um, uh, oh, just about everyone. I, I mean, I even saw Beethoven conducted by Klemperer, you know, at his, <laughs> you know, that was interesting. I saw Rubenstein and his last concert tour, you know, and to this day, I remember thinking, oh, what was that horrid clanking noise? And the horrid clanking noise was because he was a very old man. And occasionally, you would understand as Christian, occasionally he would place the chord slightly clumsily and you would realise that the sound he made was completely different to any other sound I'd heard on a piano because he was Rubenstein. So, yeah, uh, it, we fought, but they, were, they, they did inspire me, those two. The sad thing, of course, is now he wouldn't have been allowed to take you to concerts and things in the yeah. evening like that. So all of that's, you know, it's that, that sense of mentoring and, and uh, encouraging is, is more difficult now. It's much more difficult. And, you know, I do... It's, it's probably not the appropriate forum, but it does worry me. I mean, there were masters at Trinity who... Uh, I remember my... Uh, a very dear friend of mine who, who was the school secretary who married the headmaster, and there's a lovely story there, who, uh, who, was, uh, who was here at Gresham's, Oliver Bertie. And when his wife died, she married him. And, she, and I still was in touch with her. When I, I made a film about Britain, I spent a lot of time with her. And we were laughing. She said, you know, now... And she named three or four masters who would have probably, would certainly been fired, if not in jail. But you know what? We just dealt with it. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying, I'm absolutely not saying that I'm condoning it, but there's a real danger that, as you say, that, that we're getting to this hysterical uh, numatushapar situation where, where nothing can happen. But certainly, no, David Squibb would have not been allowed to take me. And I, I learned more from going to a concert with him and sitting in the interval and explaining to me what, you know, what they mean. I mean, God, how, what, what a joy. So, yeah, we, we, we gain, but we lose in all these situations. Yeah, I'm not sure that... It's a bit like 
um, plumbers, isn't it? You know, do we have any less cowboy plumbers now? Just because they have lots of legislation and re no, uh, you know, registration they have to do? I'm not sure that we do. No, I'm sure you're right. So um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a complicated it's one, a isn't it? It's a tricky one. And, and we of an age look back and can I say I was in trouble? Hard to know. I was a pretty little boy. I know, don't say. Uh, but, yeah, it was fine. What happened? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was fine. I said, good school days. And do you have a particular memory from school days that stands out most strongly, that, that maybe uh, has marked you out for life, as it were? Um, just general bad behaviour, I think. Really. In your case? Or well, generally? It, no, well, it was, I was in a... We had a... We were streamed. There, were, there was a, an express stream that did everything a year early. In fact, there's a chap who lives round here who was in the express stream, John Hugh Smith, you really know him? He's a lawyer now. He was very bright. Uh, we were fairly bright, and then we were divided alphabetically into X and Y, you know, 13 each. Three X were... There is no one memory other than the water bombing and being caught smoking when the fog lifted and we were standing right outside the school on the bank thinking, it's foggy, they can't see us. Oh, God. And all the teachers along the windows going, mm -hmm. um, But 3X were very bad. I mean, just... And a long, long time later, two things happened. I went to an old boys' dinner and was talking to one of the teachers who taught me. Oh, in fact, it was the headmaster who's, who, who was in my last year, who I still see, I saw the other me. And he, um, he'd inherited the school when Alberto died very young. And he said, in every teacher's life, there's one class that they remember with abject fear. And he said, um, I didn't remember... 3x, but I didn't need to because when I had my first sort of briefing in the common room, all that the other teachers could talk about was, well, and as for 3x, I and mean, by that time we'd become sick formers, but the, the legend lived on, and he said, you know, it still lives to this day. And it was at that same event, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not making this up, a, a group of us from 3x decided to go. And one of this group, who is a complete, to this day, hoodlum, speaks very good Latin. Funny, there are other people like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> he, uh, he said, I've just organised a little homage. We're going to uh, leave a, a Latin uh, sign on the, on the door of our old classrooms, if we can f remember where it is. So before the dinner, about six of us set off. Uh, we issued the, the school tour where, they, you know, they, this is a new sports hall there, whatever. And we found our old classroom. We walked down this corridor, which was sparkling. You could have eaten off the floor. And we got three classrooms down, and Nigel said, this is the one. And we looked. There were two locker doors hanging off. There were gym shoes across the place. There was paper and crap everywhere. And the spirit of 3X, years later, had lived on. I mean, I, didn't, I do not make that up, but I don't know what the odds are. And, 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 every, and we went upstairs and walked back. Every other classroom was perfect. So, yeah, 3X as a sort of genre was my memory. Really. Do you think there was something about being um, like that at school that gave you the qualities you needed to get on in life? 
Because, uh, I mean, I talked 27 years. I, I'm, you know, often you felt the kids who were troublesome, they were probably going to make it because they were prepared, you know, they weren't yes, yes people. They, they had ideas of their own that they wanted to uh, exercise. Yes, I think, that's, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I certainly... I was encouraged at school, even by the maths teacher... Uh, I mean, that, and then, that was an interesting one. You see, I was really crap at maths. I got 2% one year. And years later, the teacher who marked it said, Oh, Tony, I only gave you 2% because you spelt your name right. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds about right, yeah. But I had this lovely maths teacher who was very eccentric. He was a real northern doer, northerner. And he used to go out about four times each lesson to have a cig in the teacher's toilet and come back wreathed in smoke. And they all smoked. And we all smoked. Um, but not officially. Um, and um, I was very lucky. When I said I was quite a good boy soprano. And I got, I did a lot of stuff at Trinity Boys. And then I got to sing with Fabules, uh, the original production, the first ever production of Pelias and Melisande at the Royal Opera House. And, uh, which is quite a big deal. I don't know whether mm-hmm. anybody knows Pelias and Melisande, but it's a, yeah. there were two. Big scenes in it for the boy, and Boulez had said, I, "I will only do it." This is bear in mind. This is not long after he made his famous comment about that he thought all opera houses should be blown up, which he wrote in Der Spiegel about two years before this. He said, "I will only come to, to do this opera if you have, if I have a week of orchestral rehearsal in their summer break." And bearing in mind those days, the Royal Opera House Orchestra was was further to the red than, than Khrushchev, you know, to the left than Khrushchev, and they gave in. And we ha- have to have a boy. Normally it was done by a woman, because it was considered to be too difficult. And, yeah. they said, and he said, well, that's the deal. And they found me, and it was very nice. He still by the record, you know. Um, but a lovely memory was... I, I'd already been turned down. I, I, I'd, I'd got a job at Albrecht doing the first production of The Prodigal Son, one of the church parables. And for some reason, even though it only impinged on the last couple of weeks of my, um, uh, of my term, summer term, my headmaster, Oliver Bertu, wouldn't allow me to go. Now, going back to what you were saying about inappropriate behaviour, Oliver Bertu was very, very close to Benjamin Britten. In uh, the first biography by help me, and when who wrote the first one in the 80s? Uh, God. Uh, f- not the recent one, not, not can't remember his anyway, name, anyway. Yeah. He, he, the, the biographer wrote rather sn- 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 you know, sneakily, oh, uh, Britain had his first uh, you know, homosexual experience, aggressions with a, a boy, two years his senior, Oliver Bertu. This is absolute nonsense. I mean, if what we know for a fact that Britain's first homosexual experience happened with um, uh, Christopher Isherwood in the Turkish bars at, um, uh, uh, off, off Oxford Street when he was in his 20s. Uh, he did hero-worship Oliver Bear too, and uh, the lovely thing is that they were united not long before Oliver died, uh, and it's a very, very lovely story, which I tell in my, in my film. Um, but, of course, my parents said, well, if Headmaster doesn't allow you, then then you can't do it. Well, nowadays, of course, parents say, well, we'll just take him out of school. But uh, the fact is that I think Oliver felt that the atmosphere at, at Red House was probably a little bit 
febrile, shall we say, and I was, you know, quite a pretty little boy. So, whatever. I got to get to work with Boulets out of it, so frankly, I did better. But I'll never forget, sorry, long and boring story, but the lovely thing was this maths teacher, who, let's face it, would not have been predisposed to supporting me because I was really crap and didn't care. And at one point I was having real trouble and he kept me behind after the class. This was going up towards... It was why I was rehearsing, that's right, and I was having to take quite big chunks of time off school, yeah. which is why I always thought it was odd that I was allowed to do that and not the Britain thing. And, um, and he said, listen, young Britain, he said, uh, you're not very good at maths. I said, no, I'm not. He said, and you don't care. I said, no, I don't really. He said, look, I think you're going to have a wonderful career somewhere in the arts or in entertainment or something, in music. Um, I'm sure you are. So do what you can with a mass, but don't, really don't worry. Just try your best. Now, to a 13-year-old boy who's spending his days rehearsing with Elizabeth Soderstrom, Pierre Boulez and David McIntyre, you know, we're hedgy stuff. This was... Because I was going back to school, I had some really good friends who really supported me, even though they weren't musical, and some who were really shitty to me, pardon me. But to have... The maths teacher of all people saying, just do what you can. Now, that's I remember that to the yeah. day I die, because that's, those those moments a, when you're at school that actually are really important, okay. because they give you licence. Absolutely, absolutely. No, fantastic. Now, I'd like to jump on to Norfolk in a minute, but, mm -hmm. but we there's obviously a period in London when you're in London and doing a lot. Would you like to just... Encapsulate that in some way? Yeah, but Just before you come to Norfolk, what happens? Yeah. Uh, what happens? Well, basically, I went to the Royal College of Music, um, had a fine time there. Um, I did lots of jazz gigs, lots of singing gigs. I was a singer there. Um, decided to stop singing because I wasn't going to be as good as Ian Partridge, who's a marvellous tenor. And I told him that story some years ago, and he was not remotely impressed. <laughs> really chuffed. I said, I gave up singing because of you. He said, what? I said, because I thought I would never be as good as you. He said, well, I don't know about that. And I thought, you miserable sod. <laughs> I threw his records away. Uh, so I did music college, and my career went in sort of ten-year sort of ten-year intervals. So from leaving college to 30, I worked in, if mainly in theatre. I, I had a band, several bands. Right. I had a band that I took to Greece when I graduated. These are uh, pop bands, rock pop bands? Pop bands, rock yeah. bands, you won't hear me. This one was Britain Tony Combo, and we wore frilly, ruffled shirts and black ties. <laughs> I can see that. We worked that, seven yeah. nights a week. We, we were drunk all the time, right. and it was uh, wonderful. Um, but I was always interested in theatre. I had been since I was a kid, and I'd directed things, and I'd written things, and I'd done a lot of acting. So I went into music theatre, and I got lucky again. I worked for Cameron Mackintosh when Cameron Mackintosh wasn't Cameron Mackintosh, as it were, when I used to have to lend him money. Yeah, that. <laughs> Would that. Um, Time to claim it back, maybe? Uh, I've tried that. <laughs> um, so I worked, I was one of his main music men from 70 eight through to the eighties. Uh, and then I went fell out with him, got fired, fell out, uh and found myself picking up myself and uh ending up as orchestrator and conductor of the original Guys and Dolls at National Theatre with Bob Hoskins and so 
That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. At which point I thought, you know what, he's never going to get any better than this. So I remember standing at the stage door on the opening night in 81, and the lovely stage door the girl was saying, Tony, see that bloke out there? Yeah, he's flogging a ticket for 80 quid a pop. That's in 81. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I think we're a hit. Mm-hmm. We hadn't even known, and we were... The rest is history. So that was good. Um, I thought, time to move on. So I and I'd already started doing more music in arranging, conducting for other film composers. So I moved much more into film and telly through my thirties. Then got into writing more myself, which is a kind of quite usual path in the film and television world. Uh, So I kind of stopped arranging, unless it was a really exciting or very, very well-paid job. And then I, yeah, I got lucky a few more times. Um, and then probably in my mid-40s, I don't know, I started a company called Music Theatre London, which reinvented opera, sung, performed by actors who sang well rather than singers who acted badly. At the time, it was pretty revolutionary. It got up the nose of the establishment to a most fantastic degree. I can remember running battles with the Arts Council, tables being thumped, obscenities being used. I mean, they didn't get it. They funded us from time to time, but they never core-funded us. But out of that, I started to do more of that and less of the film work and got more and more intrigued. And when my co-director, I, was, I did the music, conducted and wrote the arrangements and indeed the, the, the lyrics, and Nick Broadhurst directed, and Nick was doing more and more in Germany and doing more conventional theater, opera and he kind of left and I took the company over and got into directing, which was a surprise to me but not to any of my close friends who, who have this theory that anybody with an ego like mine was going to end up as a director. So, <laughs> um, and that's, that takes, so that takes me to Norfolk. I moved to Norfolk in 2000, so I was by then coming towards the end of the time of music theatre London and picking up making films and television on my own. Okay, so stop you there a minute. And just You're doing all this in, in London. You say you got lucky. There's always an argument, isn't there? People are lucky or they make their own luck. I make some. Um, <laughs> somebody was obviously encouraging you as well or not? Or you were just really determined? Um, I was determined, but... Now, this is an interesting question there. Hmm. I think the secret to whatever success I've had, I'm going to share with you now, is, <laughs> is that I, I have no conception of failure, which you, uh, you could read as supreme arrogance. I don't think I'm supremely arrogant. I am arrogant from time, but I don't think I'm really arrogant. I just think that if I'm passionate about something, then there's no reason why I shouldn't do it. Uh-huh. And so that was, that was what drove me. And over the years, it's become obvious that, you know, I could go this afternoon down to London, where I'm going, and go into Angel Studios, pick up the baton, sight reader, film score, with all my old players, as if I've been doing it every day. Put me 
at the festival hall in front of a live orchestra, I would die of fright. And I would die of fright because I would be saying, you know what, I'm really not that good. I'm competent, but I'm not that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I suppose as I've grown older, I've learned what I am good at and what I'm not so good at. And, but it's always been driven, and I think that goes right back to Trinity. Mm-hmm. And, and I say to young people now, if I do, young people, <laughs> do the odd, you know, I have to do the odds of appearance now. And, and I just say, well, you know, you, if you're given something, and at a school like Trinity, I mean, the great, great shame, and I mean, I'm learning very, because I'm doing a project at the moment, which I might tell you about, you know, at the end, we, we, we're currently with Undertale School, where I'm seeing children who have not had any benefits at all. And I'm... So I look back at school days and think, yeah, what did they do? Well, I had a great time. But they imbued in me in that sense of, OK, you're intelligent. You've got some talent. You can do it. Find out for yourself how good you are, and if you're not that good, you'll crash. But so is it arrogance? No, it's confidence. Yeah, no, I don't think it's arrogance. I mean, you know, I worked at the personal school, and it always seemed to me that the world is littered with talented people. Yeah. They're not short of talented people, but have they got the drive to make that that leap into hyperspace? Or yeah. Whatever? And in the end, do they have that passion? Do they wake up every morning wanting to tell those stories? Yeah. And in the end. If you were to say, right, what separates those two elements, that's the thing that separates it. How, how much do I... And it is all about storytelling. How much... When I put that violin under my chin, how much do I really want to tell the story, or am I just interested in playing the notes in the right order so I pick up my chain? Sure. That's sure. the difference. Absolutely. OK. Would you, if there is, what? like to tell us about an average day in the life of Tony Britton? What, what would that look like? Sleep. Beer. Um, um, well, I'm pleased to say there is probably isn't an average day, um, because I'm now kind of comfortable, comfortably in the position where I don't have to go and do everything that's waved at me, and indeed, quite often it's not waved at me anymore. Um, I, I, I live off some royalties. I wrote a football anthem um, 25 years ago, the Champions League anthem, which. They're still using. <laughs> Which one's that, Tony? Sing it. No, I'm not. <laughs> but it has been... I mean, it, I don't earn as much as I'd like to, uh, or that you think I do, but it has enabled me to make some choices about projects that I want to do that I would not have been able to afford to do had I not had that, that income. And, you know, and it's still a bit here. I mean, at the, at this, as we speak, I've just had an email from my publisher saying, well, I think we're OK because they've done a version of it for some uh, game, video game, and they've got all excited because they've got Hans Zimmer, who's recreated it. Now, Hans, who's very famous now, uh, Hans, when we were all doing stuff in the 80s, Hans was the kraut. Isn't that terrible? If you had something you needed doing on synthesizers, it was a bit weird. You phone Hans at Lilliard Studios, Hans the Kraut, and he'd make funny noises for you. He was not a composer, not like us, you know. And uh, well, look at him now, um, and he's a very good businessman. So we're fighting a little battle, and I'm saying, yes, okay, you can have some percentage, Hans, but uh, it's mine. So that's 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 nice. So so my oh, very much your question. My average day is very much dictated by what project I'm either on or sniffing around. So quite a lot of it is research, Um, either going to libraries, reading online or whatever. Um, I mean, I've got a project that I'm researching at the moment, 
who would have thought it? I have to say, back, back as a rowdy music student in the 70s, and somebody had said you'd spend weeks of your life at Britain Piers Library or, or Senate House or whatever, I'd have said, I don't think so, love, I'm a muso. Uh, but now I get immense joy out of it. But I get immense joy because it's generally leading somewhere. It's, it's generally leading to a piece of something that I'm going to make, whether it's a theatre piece or... So and are you an early riser? Or do you no. have to back into it? Are you a deadline? I'm, I'm not an early riser, which, given that I spend quite a lot of time making films, is, is a perennial problem. Don't talk to me on the set before about mm, ten-ish. Um, so, no, I'm hopeless. I go to bed too late, and then I'm not very disciplined. Um, I'm disciplined when I'm, on, I'm making films, obviously, or if I'm due at a studio. No, I don't, I'm not late. But self-discipline... It's getting better, because as I'm getting older, I'm getting less good at working late. And in the old days, I could work... I mean, I remember situations working on big American scores in the 80s with Nick Beekar. Anybody heard of Nick Beekar? Wonderful composer. He's still a dear friend. And sitting up in a house rented next to Olympic Studios in Barnes, and literally writing all night, having conducted all day, getting a half-an-hour kit, large black coffee in back in front of a hundred piece orchestra start again. If I try to do that now I'll just die. So it is a young man's game, so I've had to be a little bit more disciplined and possibly a little bit more selective. I, I'm hopefully getting better that when I get into a project I think this is really good, I then have to really police myself and say, is it that good? Is it really that interesting? Will anybody else care? Um, but that so my day will be that or I've got back to some composing, so I might spend a day composing. I sometimes even do piano practice, <laughs> very quietly. Um, yeah, and I, and I run a little film company here, so I mean, I pop in the office most days, um, just to kind of keep up with either stuff we've sold or stuff we're planning. Um, yeah, it's kind of office boy stuff, really, but that has to be done. So you say, and uh, you say in your blurb, that you ran away to Norfolk at the time that you were getting a divorce, yeah? yeah? Why Norfolk? Well, I mean, well, you could have run away. You'd been working in Europe, New Zealand, um, America. You yeah, could have run anywhere, couldn't you? I could have done, but we... When I was married, we used to bring the children up when they were very small up on holiday here. We used to rent holidays. In fact, we rented the Georgian wing at, at, um, at Gunthorpe Hall several times and just had lovely memories. So when it all went wrong, and it went... Yeah, pretty cataclysmically wrong. Um, I'm, you know, I'm pleased to say it went wrong because I fell in love with somebody else who I'm still in love with 30 years later, and um, uh, who I'm sure some of you have met, Mary. And so, yeah, there's a happy ending, but uh, it was kind of bad. And I just I went and stayed with some, a friend of mine who ran a record, who ran Polygram Records, who I'd done some work with. And they'd rented out, they'd come back to England from Hamburg and they'd rented a house in Essex and I went and stayed a couple of days there and, and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, I'm just going to drive. And I kind of found myself up here. Um, so I just spent a few days here and it was a lot of phone calls to my then wife and, and it was, and they, she was then ended up taking my kids to America and yeah, it was not a, it was not a good time but I felt there was a kind of, I felt okay here. And then, that, then I bought, then I rented a cottage here. I was just driving around. I was driving through Brinton. Nobody drives through Brinton. <laughs> <laughs> That's harsh. That's harsh. I loved it. But, you know, it doesn't lead anywhere. It's a loop. And I drove through, and there was um, 
Stonewall Cottage for, 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 for let. And by that time, this is on, on a kind of return visit, and, I'd, uh, and I think I was at least... I wasn't, no, I wasn't even talking to Mary at that point. We were both trying to make a go of it separately, which was a complete waste of time, but we tried. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take this. It wasn't very expensive, and it was owned by the... Uh, oh! What happened then? Sorry about that. Okay. So I rented this place off the Bagnall Oakleys who live in Britain and we've become very dear friends and and that kind of saved me. Uh, and I was there for two years, and then I had to have a house in London because my kids were going to school, and we were sharing all that stuff. And and then then the boys went to America, and so I was stuck living in Dunwich. My partner was in down the road in on Rope Park in, in Forest Hill, and I just I was getting less and less pleased with being in London, and we didn't want to live together. Actually, we still don't technically. Um, I mean, we'd both come out of ten-year marriages, and we both, you know, we, we, we didn't leave those marriages lightly. I mean, you know, we just these things happen. So we were very conscious that we didn't we were taking things gently. So I said, you know what? I think I want to live in Norfolk and come up and down to you, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. We looked and looked, and there was a place in Brenton opposite where I used to live and I remember Mary who wasn't and to this day is not 100% sold on me living up here and her living down there but I remember her saying you know we've looked at all these places none of them were Brinton aren't they and I said no so I bought the old reading room where I lived for 15 years mm-hmm. um, so it was um, yeah I was escaping um, what was Norfolk like then why, why was it an escape? Could you, could you put that in words? Well, was... partly because I knew it. I think, you know, I always say to people, if you're thinking of buying a place in the country, go and rent somewhere first <laughs> see what it's like. Um, I didn't get much... I'm quite gregarious, so I like pubs, uh, and that's a good thing. So I found myself at the Honey Bell, you know, pretty rapidly, where I've more or less lived ever since, actually. Um, and... I think for me, my brother, my middle brother, who's much more sensible than me, um, he, they moved to the country in West Sussex a few years back, and they, they didn't last. He said, and he said, I'm not really a pubby person, and there was nothing else in the village, and we were, actually we weren't seeing anybody. And so it's a tricky one to get right. I, got, I have to say I've had no experience of that much vaunted, oh, Norfolk people that only talk to you if you've lived there 30 years, you know, your income. I don't, I don't, I've, I've had a bit of that. But mainly I've had just uh, lovely people being kind and people... So I'd go down to the pub when I first moved here and I kept myself to myself because I was in a very bad place. And people used to say, I remember you, you take your independent and have your two pints and four cigarettes and off you went. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. But then I did get to chatting to people and... There were people, I mean, a, a, a guy I don't know, I'm sure some of you will remember David Atfield, the guy who ran the, owned the Holt Antique Centre. He oh, yes. was a dear, dear friend of mine, real rough diamond, fantastic person who made friends. Hmm. Not in a pushy way, just in a, okay, do you want to communicate way? And there was a lot of that. So I didn't feel, I felt fairly accepted. 
you know, it was in, it, 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 it comfortable. Was, yeah, comfortable. Contented. But as much as one ever is, yeah. yeah. Which is good. Yeah. And around that time, or at some point, a group of you obviously thought, do you know what? We would like to see some more art stuff happening around here. How about we start? <laughs> is that how it happened? At the honey bowl over a pint or two? No, or? actually, how it happened, as I recall, and it's, it's lost in the mists of time, <laughs> um, there had been talk about this town should have a festival for a very long time, I, I gather. And a friend of mine had been approached, Alastair Bogue, who was a teacher, who uh, a Norfolk boy, who now lives in America, in New York, in fact, I was with him two weeks ago. And he'd been approached and... Uh, Nothing really happened. And then I think uh, John Lintot, local lawyer, kind of thought this would be a good idea. And John's a very charming enabler. And then he got Rue Bruce Lockhart involved. And, and I got to know Rue. And it was very kind of casual. And we had a sort of meeting, I believe at Rue's, of like-minded people. And at the end of it... Uh, I think it was John said, right, well, you're the chairman then. <laughs> he said, well, what? He said, well, you seem to know stuff about, you know, we don't know anything about the arts. We just think it's a good idea. So I kind of thought, okay. And then it became clear that they wanted me to be artistic director. And I said, hang on a minute. You're a lawyer, John. Uh, I've run charity theatre groups, uh, and I know my charity law, and you, you can't be the chairman and the artistic director. There's a clear conflict of interest because I could shoehorn anything I want through to me as the chairman from me as the artistic director. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's true. I mean, you, you just can't do it, you know. Oh, and it was real Norfolk. I'd be all right, boy. <laughs> but I don't think so. Anyway, we kind of made it right first year and then it, there was a proper set-up and we became a registered charity and all that. And, and then it did take off really quite rapidly. Um... And I think it took off largely due to the fact that people were prepared to do what I told them. That was a good thing. Um, in so much as I would say, I think it would be a good idea to do this, that and the other. And by the way, I think it should be right across all the art forms. We shouldn't be a music festival, we should be an arts festival. Uh, and I want to do all of it. And I want you to trust me. And you go and raise the money. And... So it was, the first year was a joy, and we, I don't know whether people remember the first year, it was pretty, pretty bloody good though, I say it myself, um, and we turned a profit. And so the case was made that you could do really good work and still make money, you didn't have to always lose, well you would always lose money on one thing and make it on another, I mean that's just how it was. So that's how it that's how it went on, certainly in, in when I was involved. And then, you know, it changed and evolved. Um, I, three years was enough for me. Um, not least, because I wasn't being paid for it. And, you know, uh, there were political issues. You can't do something like this in a community like this without... You, you get a situation, and I'm perfectly happy to say it, because I've said it to everybody involved, you get a situation where from saying... God, well, you should do that. You, you know all these people, and you're really, you know, you've done that. Well, if, yes, I've been doing it for 40 years. I should know all these people. He would then say, but what about, you should be doing this. At which point, you know, you say, no, no, no. I, but that's, that's how these things evolve. You yes, know. Um, yes. 
and they, and they need to evolve and change and move on. Yeah. Is there anything you're particularly proud of to do with that, setting it up in the first couple of years, three years? Um, I can't... No, it would be invidious to name one particular event because uh, most of them worked. I mean, not all of them. Um, I do... I'm proud that we certainly start. It did change, but we started off representing all the art forms, you know, reasonably well, and I'm proud of that. And that we made, you know, I introduced William Simcock when he was in his early days, as and he's now a world famous jazz pianist, but he wasn't then. But I knew his work, and I remember an acquaintance of mine had been forced by his wife to come along to support, saying to me. Well, I only like trad jazz, and I, I, I asked, Christ, well, you're in for a bit of a shock. And of course, he came to me in the end, so I've just bought all his records. He said, you changed my life. <laughs> Thank you. That's what you do. Yeah. So I'm proud of that, and I enjoyed a lot of it. And I'm prou- I'm, I, I enjoy the memory of, of, of being left with John Major in year one, I think, um, as the wonderful Elizabeth Mansfield was doing her, her piece about Mary Lloyd. And John was writing his... I've got to know him a little bit since then. He, he was writing his rather good book on the history of musical. He got completely ignored in the uh, interim. And I said to Rue, isn't somebody dealing with him? I mean, you know, he's... So I went and chatted. And he was really... He's a very interesting, I found, a charming man. But he really worried me. He said, look, I'm, in the interview, we had a drink and he said, I'm really enjoying the show, and I'm so interested in Elizabeth's obvious knowledge of Mary Lloyd. Do you think it would be... Would you be able to organise... effect an introduction? Now, Liz Mansfield, I don't know whether she's card-carrying communist, but she certainly <laughs> grew up with Redshift Theatre and all that, and is still a very sturdy socialist and one of my dearest chums, but I thought, oh, dear God, how do I wriggle out of this one? Because he wasn't doing, I'm the ex-Prime Minister, so I'm writing this book, I'm really interested, and he's a nice man. So I go into the, um, after the show, go into the dressing room, darling, you're marvellous. She said, yeah, right, okay. I said, little favour. She said, yes. She's known me quite a long time, Liz. I said, um, if somebody would love to meet you, I was really, he's writing a book about the musical. Oh, she said, how amazing. I said, yes, it's John Major. She said, only for you. <laughs> and I said, and I love you too. And, they, and of course, he is charming. He is, is, was and is very nice about that whole period. Well, we had to ask them to leave in the end because they had a lot of place. They were <laughs> rabbiting away, best friends. And I, I, I gather they, st- they stayed in communication um, because, you know, she was helping them with her advice. So there you go, that was a fun thing. There was quite a lot of that. Um, but yes, trying to, trying to spread the word and without be, being evangelical about it, saying, look, if there's something that you don't think you like, it's probably good to try it here for 15 quid rather than in London for three times that in a journey. Why don't you just try it? What is it? It's an hour and a half out of your day. Do you have a regret about it at all? Something you didn't achieve that you'd like to achieve? Uh, I think I probably got a little bit too, um, too much of the Napoleon complex about it towards the end. Um, ruffled a few feathers, but hey... Um, those feathers have been smoothed subsequently 
no, I think I, I think what I, I no, I can't say this without sounding big-headed, but I think what I achieved was good. I'm very proud of it, proud of everything. Um, I, I was saddened that uh, more recently I felt the thing had lost its way slightly. Um, that the standard and quality of the acts was not as good or as varied and there were lots of things that weren't being addressed like film and mm -hmm. uh, I did think that was a shame and I think it was probably as much due to you know the bottom line and people saying well look John Major, go back to John Major, we made, we made a lot of money with him because we had 700 people in the theatre in the woods, the sun shone uh, and all it cost was a, a microphone, a, a host and he charged, I don't think he charged very much mm. Oh, it's to profit, and we've talked about this, you know. And to which I would say, yeah, but what if it pisses with rain? Mm -hmm. Or what if you have Geoffrey Archer, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go and see Geoffrey Archer. Mm -hmm. I don't approve of Geoffrey Archer. Mm -hmm. the, the end of. There was a lot of that, which I thought was missing opportunities, and I'm glad to see that it seems to be steering back to, to, a, to a, a more, more generalised arts festival. I mean, it's, that's what it is. It's not, it's not a literary festival. Sure. Yeah, and, sure. And I think striking the balance is jolly hard. Yes. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> We're nearly at a point where you're probably, as I said at the beginning, frying in your seat. But does anybody want to ask a question particularly? Yeah, Catherine. Seems to be much more placed now, either in the or in the church and in various venues, and there's less and less actually in hold. We don't have the acrobats anymore, we don't have the jugglers, we don't have the mime artists, we don't have that very, very beautiful festival feeling. Do you think that there's anything that they can do to bring that back? Because I think there's many people in hold that are missing it. Yeah, I think, well, I'll. I'll um Discuss that with the new director in due course. But, but I, the, the reason it started, historically, was that we were able to get a minuscule grant. There is no arts council or any grant money available for an arts festival in a very middle-class, middle-England town. They just don't want to help. And they may be right. You know what? We've, there's enough disposable income in this town to make a festival work, as we've pro proven. And there's enough sponsors, there's still enough companies alive to sponsor. But we were able to get bits and bobs of money on the, the understanding that it was spent in the community, if you like, on the streets, street theatre, that sort of thing. So, if you like, there was a degree of cynicism to start with. But then we thought, actually, you know, this is really good. And we were very lucky with uh, Mary Hunt, who organised the street theatre. She was brilliant. She'd worked in the business uh, for, with a colleague of mine, and you know, she knows her way around. Uh, so we got lucky with that. Um, and then we did take risks. I mean, I don't know whether any people remember, but I think it was year two, we had Boulevard Bard, which my partner put together, where we had four actors running around the town doing bits of Shakespeare here, there, and everywhere, and in the early evening, <laughs> before, before the shows in the Auden, singing Sondheim and... And, and, uh, and it was... That was... Actually, that was one of the things I'm really proud of. I didn't do anything. She did it all, but I thought it was a brilliant idea. I got a lot of opposition. Well, it's going to cost. Well, yeah, they're professional actors. Would you do it for free? Mm -hmm. And there was quite a lot of... I mean, quite uh, big arguments about that, and I, I know, and of course it wasn't helped by the fact that they all started feathering the missus nest. Well, she didn't. I think she charged about two hundred quid for about two months' work, you know. But I was in, incredibly proud of that because it 
it followed on from the street theatre and said, OK, listen, you're in Budgeons, there's no reason why you shouldn't hear the Crispin Day speech, and you're going to hear it. The girls in the green grosses down the road still say to me, when are we going to get our Shakespeare back? Um, so, yeah, uh, if it can be achieved again... Um, I think it would not be uh, a cynical thing. I mean, when I say cynical, I mean it, it, we were doing it because we could. I think if there's a way of funding it, uh, either from sponsorship or from from application to to the regional arts board, if not the art not the arts council, they're a waste of time. But that it should be back on the agenda. I personally think because I just think it makes everything buzz. Um, and it's, it's tricky because it's a slightly sort of spade out of town. There's always been the town and gown argument. Um, but actually, I always said that it was spurious because, frankly, we've got a fantastic hall and beautiful recital hall, which I hadn't seen until the other night. I saw the, um, uh, the Vox Humana double bill. I mean, dear God, how lucky are we? Because we can use it. We don't have to pay. Um, so, town and gown is a silly nonsense because if you've got, you know, a million quids of Steinway worth of Steinway Grand at your disposal, you know, I mean, yeah, I'll give you an example. There were silly things done where they had piano recitals in the church. Now, I love the church and I put in brass groups, I put in a solo harp, I put in lute, I, you name it, uh, vocal groups. The one thing that does not work in that church, uh, sonically, is piano. It sounds like a tin can. So for several years they put piano in the church, which meant they had to rent a boudoir grand piano, which sounded like tin cans. And you think, well, hang on a minute, you've got 150,000 quid's worth of Steinway D concert grand just down there. That was silly. Um, and it, it, so the town of Gown thing needs, I think people shouldn't really... Um, it's, it, it's there, but it's not. It's important to enjoy the facilities they offer, you know. But yeah, get some stuff on the street. There, there is a good piano in there now, and I think it sounded very good. I, yeah, I would leap to its defence. Well, that's well, the new car, yeah. yeah but but I, I, I but take you know what point. I mean. I if, if you've got it on a plate, then don't yeah. shove it away. But I th think, the, just to pick up the answer, I think we are all talking about how we could move forward. As chair of the fringe, we've been trying very hard with no money to make some things happen. We're hoping if we can get people talking together, which they're beginning to do, like the Chamber of Trade, um, you know, different factions in the community working together, and I think I can say Anwin's very keen to see it happen as well. People talking to one another, and let's make that happen. But yes. the, the year everybody remembers, there was a massive EU grant, which is not available, and it's not going to be available, is it, anymore? So that's the problem. It costs money, and we have to get that money from somewhere. So we, well, we are talking about it. But can we leave that question there? And was there any, another question anybody had that they'd like to make? Richard? Yes, uh, Tony, you played films on topics as varied as Alma Cogan and John Wilby. Uh, what, is there a particular thread among these that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and make films about such <laughs> varied topics? Or? That's a very good question, because blimey, they should be, shouldn't they? Um, uh, the, again, there's things that, I mean, In Love with Alma Cogan popped into my head in the bath. And I wanted to write something for Roger Lloyd Pack because I thought he was a fine actor who was not, who wasn't being used properly, and he was local. Um, stuff like Will Be is like it's just a story. I want to tell the story. Um, so the latest one, which I will do a plug about, because I've got some cards there, um, which is through Lottie's lens, is you know why would anybody tell a story about 
30s mainly Jewish emigres who came to this country and helped rebuild our arts, sciences, politics, culture in every way. Well, I didn't set out to make a political film, but I seem to have made a political film, but I made it because it was a story I wanted to tell, and I found a means of telling it. And it's that same thing about research. Quite a lot of the stories don't ever get beyond my little man cave because I can't find the right means of telling them. And I think it's fair to say that moving forward, unless I take early retirement, which is a very um, engaging prospect uh, in many ways, um, I'm likely to be doing more of the documentary side, in, in film anyway, than I'm going to be doing uh, a drama, I suspect. Um, just because it's hard to get the drama stuff away and I, I'm a bit old to be... Uh, working that hard to get the financing. I think, and there's, there's lots of stories that I'd like to tell, but it, uh, it's just about storytelling. It's nothing, I can't be more precise than that. Uh, is there an, another question? Um, no, well, we're... Well, well, we, we, we watched Chicklet recently, four of us. How much fun was it to make that film? Did it look great fun? Well, that's the star. Well, we just saw, <laughs> we, we saw your picture on the cover, actually, because we've got the cover on there. It just looked tremendous fun to make. Yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was, uh, it was joyous. We went to the Honeybell last night. Well, we are, because I actually work at the Honeybell as part of the team that opened it last year. Oh, right, yeah. So I was going to ask yeah. you, are you, are you using it again? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we should sell DVDs there, really, shouldn't we? We should be used to, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, um, it was absolutely... We had marvellous weather, although we had weather like this in the week we were filming at the Honeybell. And, of course, um, we were shooting mainly night scenes, so we had to black the whole thing off. The temperature got in, in light into over 100 degrees. It was, it was just like this. Yeah, yeah. 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 I can imagine, yeah. For, for well, we thought we'd recreate it for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you let them know who you were last night, Sorry? Did you let them know who you were? Uh, no, I didn't really. Um, I should, no, really. Um, yeah, we, we were self It's best not to go into a place to go, you know well, who I am. The reason I say that, they, they don't have been thrilled to know that you were there. Well, I think they maybe do. They've got free milk. I think they do. I tried that with the beer. It didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> and last time I was here, making a film here, the lady went behind the bar, she said, Really? She said, Really? What was that film? I said, Well, it was filmed in here a few years ago. So I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you must. You really must. Have. You, you must let them know who you are next time. <laughs> I will do. Uh, but no, in answer to your question, it, it was huge fun. Um, the only problem, well, there were, there were problems, there were, there's always problems with films, but the only problem for me was that I gave up smoking just before we opened the, the, started filming. And even the smoking consultant down at the Kelling Clinic said, are you sure this is the right time? You've been smoking for 40 years. I said, well, is there a right time? And, and of course, I had, you know, I did the champics and all that. They didn't work. I just had nightmares and I couldn't sleep. So I went cold turkey. And I was a serious smoker. And I feel very sweet that I really felt I had to stop. And all four of the boys who played the dominoes players were smoking. <laughs> so after every, every shot, and then when you set up, they'd all sit outside in the lovely sun, <sighs> and I'd walk past and begin. <laughs> and that, I have to say, was the most difficult thing um, I've ever done. But um, hey, I still don't smoke, and he still does. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think we need to wind it up there and to say a huge thank you to you, Tony. I, I didn't deliberately, I deliberately didn't dwell on the films today because I think you've got other opportunities to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. And I want to talk about early life and, mm. and Holt. But thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time and your memories and your experience. And we shall... Uh,